Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is Driven Minds, a Type 7 podcast. If you spend any time on TikTok, which you very well might not unless you are a Gen Zer, I'm personally a millennial and do not have an account. But amongst the lip syncing videos, you will find an absolute gem of a human being. His name is Elaj Balde, and he's a Ghanaian-Russian figure skater who first gained traction with all of these videos that ended up going viral of him doing these wild skating routines on ice. And I'm talking backflips and dance moves that you normally see on the safety of land and not the harrowing, death-defying concreteness of ice. That's how I see it, at least. I feel like many of us have had some sort of experience on the ice, you know, whether it was your aunt convincing you to skate on a rink or a pond during Christmas, or I don't know why that came to my head, but I'm sure someone out there has had that experience, or my experience, which was my mom making me take ice skating lessons when I was seven. And I was a tomboy at the time, so I hated wearing pink and needing to be graceful, which I was not. I also hated falling because I wasn't allowed to wear knee pads for some reason because it clashed with the pink leotard. But anyway, Alange complains a lot less than I do. But he feels the same in terms of how restrictive and perfect this whole professional figure skating culture is. And what makes Alange unique is that instead of skating to some sort of competition-approved Tchaikovsky ballad of sorts, he opts for Beyonce and 50 Cent and wears ripped jeans and flannel shirts in the process, which is obviously a huge no in the figure skating world. So the style and vibe he's cultivated on socials is entirely his own and completely hypnotic to watch because I personally have never seen anything like this before. And while training to be an Olympian, Alaj has had to navigate a ton of really difficult stuff like racism, undiagnosed ADHD, and also the cost of ice skating, which I was absolutely unaware of. Apparently, it's like tens of thousands of dollars a year that you have to spend on instructors and costumes and competition fees. It's been a nonstop thrill ride, but I'm going to shut up and let Alaj tell his own story. So where are you in time and space? Time and space. I am in Los Angeles. Are you based in LA? I've been here for about six months during the summer, but I'm actually going to Canada during the winter so I can go out and skate on the lakes and uh, do all the beautiful magic there. I mean, it does make sense that you were attracted to cold in the winter because I did some low-key reconnaissance on you, shall we say. And I saw that (laughs) you were born in November, meaning you are also a Scorpio like me. Yes. Oh my God, I sense the excitement. So that means something to you. It does because literally (laughs) I feel like everyone that I'm close to is a Scorpio. Same. My wife is a Scorpio. Some of my closest friends are Scorpios. And we both of us have a group of like, eight of us that were all Scorpios, like we're crushing the Scorpio season. (laughs) How much do you know about Scorpios? Well, I know that my sun, my moon, my rising and my Jupiter is in Scorpio as well. So you're like, I'm like Scorpio, Scorpio as yeah. yeah. So it's pretty intense. Yeah. So give me the tea. We know that you are a Scorpio and that you're born in November. 
But I also read that you were born in Russia around the time mm-hmm. that the USSR collapsed. No? Yeah. So I was born in 1990 in Moscow. My parents, my dad being from Africa, uh, my mom being from Russia, my dad went all the way to the Soviet Union to study further his education. And that's where he met my mom. And I was born in Moscow and we left when I was very young. We left, I was about mm-hmm. two years old. I was not, no, actually not even, I think I was 10 months when we left. Um, we left Moscow because my older sister, who was six at the time, she had been diagnosed with leukemia. And at the time in Russia, they didn't have the technology and the treatments to treat her. And oh so they, they told us to go to Germany. So we went to Bonn, which was the capital at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And we spent about a year there trying to help my sister and try to treat her. And unfortunately, she ended up uh, passing away in Germany at the at the age of seven. And then at that time, you know, my parents, that was 1992. So that's exactly when my mom was telling me she was on TV, watching mm-hmm. TV, and she would see the tanks rolling into the Red Square. And she was like, oh what is going on? And so my dad being African, my mom not knowing what's happening there, they were like, there's no way we're going back right now, especially at the time my dad had suffered a lot of racism. You know, my, my sister being young myself, you know, we, we, we did suffer a lot of racism from just being in Russia. So they didn't want to go back there because it was potentially going to be dangerous and there was no government, you know. So at that time, they decided they were going to go to... Canada and they decided to come to Montreal. And I'm, you know, I'm super grateful that they did because it's essentially the reason why I'm able to live the life that I am now. They've made so many sacrifices. They gave up on their dreams for me to be here and to do what I do. And so, you know, I'm forever grateful for everything that they've done for myself and my two younger sisters. I'm so sorry about your sister. I mean, that must have been really just unimaginable, especially at the time. And being so young, like being able to comprehend that and what's going on. I mean... Yeah, yeah. And I think for me, like, I was so young that I don't remember her, but there is a part of me deep down that feels her and that remembers her. Actually, my sisters and I, we have a tattoo. All three of us, we have the same tattoo. And it says, um, essentially on her grave, stone, it says an angel watching over you. And so my sisters and I, we got that tattooed on us because we've always felt like she's been with us our entire lives. So Bonn was just an interlude and then you went to Canada. Montreal. To Montreal. Yeah. Did you grow up there? I was there until I was 21. So I spent the majority of my life uh, in Montreal. Yeah. And your father is Ghanaian, your mother is Russian. Yeah. So what was it like for them settling into Montreal after leaving the USSR and getting jobs? I mean, I can't even imagine the culture shock. It was definitely hard. One, because my mom didn't speak French or English. She only spoke Russian. So coming into a country where you don't speak the language, you can't work. Secondly, I was baby. I was two years old. So, you know, she had to take care of me. She was also pregnant with my younger sister. And the reason why they chose Montreal is because my dad spoke French because he's from Guinea and in Guinea, it was a French colonized country. So he, he was able to find work right away, but it wasn't work in his field. So my dad had studied civil engineering in Russia. And one of the most intellectual men, person, human, I've ever seen in my life. Just in order for him to leave Africa to go to Russia, he had to be in the top 
10 of the entire country and the entire nation. Um, and he was in the top four of the nation. And, you know, he finished university there, top of the university in Russia, the USSR, and then came to Canada and they didn't accept his documents. And then he couldn't find work anywhere. And at that point, we have three kids. My mom is still not working because she's still learning the language. And so my dad started driving trucks. And that's what he's been doing essentially for the last 15 years. Obviously, it's not his passion. It's not what he mm-hmm. would have wanted to do, but he did it so that we could have the life that we have now. When was the first time you put on a pair of skates? I was around six years old and I hated it. I hated it. So it wasn't a love at first skate situation. Okay, I want to say that my first couple experiences were fun. I remember just like putting skates on with my mom outdoors and like being comfortable really quick. And mm-hmm. I was able to skate. I was able to do like little spins. And my mom was just showing because she was a skater back in Russia. It's like a national sport. It's, right. it's, it's like right. hockey in Canada or baseball in the US. But the reason why I hated it was it became serious very quickly. My mom being Russian and like skating being so popular in Russia, there's this culture that if you take up figure skating, if you pick up figure skating, you're doing it to be the best Olympic champion. And if that's not your goal, then you're wasting your time. Don't even do it, right? So, so it's like a total all or nothing situation. Oh my God. It's, it's literally the definition. You go in the dictionary, you look up all or nothing. It's probably figure skating career. <laughs> Photo of your mom. Yeah. Photo of my... Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's started right away with private lessons. Within the first few weeks of me stepping on the ice, I was already in private lessons with a Russian coach. And oh wow, six months later, I was competing. Sorry, so you're six at this time and you're competing. Six and a half. Six. Okay, right. Of course, that that half matters. By the way, that half is important. Absolutely. <laughs> Anyways, um, I was competing already, and it was a disaster. I was last. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was. Mm. I didn't even know how to jump. I didn't know anything. But I was already put in that pressure situation of being in competition Mm. and I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, I totally get what you mean in terms of if you're not choosing your sport and if it is not done Mm -hmm. out of total self-love for something, it gets just absolutely infuriating. My mom did something similar with piano and Mm -hmm. it is, I mean... I would lose my shit when I was six, seven. I also started playing (laughs) at that age and I would get so frustrated by my own inability to not properly play a chord or whenever I'd fuck up that I would crumple the the sheet music, throw it on the ground and is a complete testament to my mom's saintly bandwidth because it was a full cleanup on aisle 12 (laughs) situation when I would throw these tantrums. So I don't know if you were a similar child, a kindred Scorpio spirit in yes. terms of just yes. fucking losing your mind. But <laughs> you you already know. And I can connect with it because I did piano before I skated too. I could not sit for more than five minutes because I had I had ADHD. Same. Undiagnosed. But oh my I'm, God. I know I had it. And so I was there and I had to like press keys for an hour. Are you kidding me? Like within five minutes, apparently I was running around the piano, like trying to do backflips off of it because that's, I, need, I, I, <laughs> I had so much energy. I couldn't sit there and concentrate like that for that long. 
What did you end up doing about your ADHD or did it go undiagnosed all of childhood? It went undiagnosed. And I'm kind of glad it did, especially at the time in the 90s. Like there's been a lot of issues with that. So I'm kind of glad my parents never really Mm -hmm. knew what it was. And they just thought I had a lot of energy. Or like what Ritalin was. Or Ritalin. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like because I've learned how to deal with it. And now, you know, I... I don't have the hyperactivity anymore, but it's manageable now. Whereas as a kid, it's like, unless they give you Ritalin, it's like in society, it's like, there's no way he's going to succeed, you know? So totally. um, But my mom saw that and in a way, that's why she put me in skating because I had so much energy that she was like, if I throw him on the ice, he'll just like skate around for hours (laughs) and he'll use up all his energy, come home and crash. Totally. I remember though, like people making fun of me and and shaming me for having too much energy and being too much and annoying. As a kid, it's like I would go to these competitions and, you know, we'd be on a bus and like I couldn't sit still on the bus. Like I had to Mm. do things and people were just annoyed. And I remember just uh, internalizing that and just feeling so much shame for like having that much energy. And, and, you know, I wish I would have at least known that it's okay and it's normal because at the time I felt like I was alone. I felt like there was no one else that that was going through what I was going through. And 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 it was it was definitely hard. That lands so hard. I also was told constantly that I was too much. That everything mm-hmm. I did was too much, that I had too much energy. I was constantly in timeout mm-hmm. or grounded like my entire youth. Yeah. And then you grow up and you're always so cognizant of being too much, too loud, too <sighs> all these things. And then it ends up working for you the same way that it has with you, you know? Yeah, you're being rewarded. Yeah, exactly. So six and a half, you're not liking skating. When do you start liking skating? Quite frankly, it started when I started winning competitions and I started landing jumps that kids my age weren't landing. I became also very passionate about jumping. I loved jumps and the feeling of landing a new jump, like your first double jump. It's just like, your brain just explodes. You're just like, I just did this. I landed a double jump and I became obsessed with landing new jumps and more difficult jumps. And that's what essentially like took me through, you know, most of the first half of my career was just my technical abilities were undeniable. And so mm-hmm. I was winning a lot, even though my style wasn't great. People said I skated like a monkey. I had bad posture. You know, I wasn't doing the classical skating, but my jumps were so good that no one could deny that. And I put my entire self-worth mm-hmm. in that. And that just reinforced this thing of like, one day I'm going to be Olympic champion. And everything, right. the driving force was being Olympic champion and winning uh-huh by landing jumps where it was getting me there. And so right. everything that I was, who I was, was wrapped up in that. Mm. So it seems at this point that backflips and kind of tearing up the ice is what you want to be doing. Yet when you compete in these competitions, I'm curious what you're actually expected to perform on the ice because I remember watching a ton of professional figure skating when I was younger. And I know this might sound so naive of me to say, but the routines look very similar, especially when it comes to dress, to music, to the kinds of moves they do on the ice. You know, growing up, I definitely had my own style. I had my own way (laughs) of doing things, but I was always told that I couldn't let that 
out too mm. much because it wouldn't fit within the norm and the mold of figure skating. I was referred to as skating like a monkey because I didn't have the posture that the figure skating culture says you should have. It's and, awful. and skating, you know, for me, at that point, I was passionate and fascinated by rap and hip hop and break dance and mm. all these ways of moving and experiencing music that I wasn't allowed to use on the ice. Because again, it's, a, it's an extremely subjective sport. And mm -hmm. so if you come out and the panel is white men and women in their 50s and 60s, and you come mm -hmm. out and you skate to something that's like Usher, mm -hmm. you know, it's not something they will connect with and it's not something that they will appreciate. So you'd get lower scores because of that? Yeah, absolutely. It's not pretty. It's not elegant. It's not classic. And so I spent a lot of years where I changed the kind of music I skated to, the kind of costumes I wore. I even changed the way that I dressed off the ice and what kind of music I listened to off the ice. To conform to their subculture. And also sub subconsciously, I looked mm -hmm. at all of the successful figure skaters and mm -hmm. I looked at what they looked like on the ice and off the ice. And to mm. me, I had to be that in order to be successful. I didn't see anyone that looked like me that had a different style that was national champion or Olympic champion. And so in my mind, subconscious, I was like, okay, well, that's how I need to be. So <laughs> I started dressing preppier and, and just changing my style completely. And again, I came from a family where we didn't have the money to look the way that these people looked. And so, right. you know, knowing that financially you're not with these people, you don't live in the same space, you know, it makes you feel like you're not enough and you don't have enough, but you have to be there in order to be successful. So this, this whole dilemma of like, well, I need to present myself a certain mm. way. And if I don't, then I'm, I'm not going to make it. But it, it, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like I was being myself and, and I, I wasn't fulfilled. I didn't feel like I truly could express myself authentically. But again, mm -hmm. it didn't matter because I'm being rewarded for it and I'm, I'm winning competitions and my goal is to be Olympic champion. So I'll do whatever I need to do. Right. But I'm breaking the trust with myself and my relationship with myself. I'm curious what it was like being a boy who was ice skating. And I'm yeah. asking this because I feel there are so many gendered stereotypes associated with sports. I remember playing soccer in high school, which was not a mm -hmm. full sport in 2003 yeah. in New York City, yeah. let me tell you. And yeah. I went to an all-girls school and all the cool mm -hmm. girls played field hockey. No one played soccer. And I remember that that was the first time I heard the word lesbian because it was associated mm -hmm. with the girls that played soccer. Like as a kid, I had no idea what lesbian even meant, but mm -hmm. the way it was whispered maliciously, the 12-year-old me was like, whatever this lesbian word is, I don't want to be it. And I can imagine that you might have had a similar experience with figure skating. Yeah, with figure skating. Absolutely. It was a quote-unquote girl sport. You know, mm -hmm, it's like totally, that's, what, yeah. that's what people were telling me. And or if you're a figure skater, then it absolutely means that you're gay, you know? Mm -hmm. And so growing up in that and being bullied and being teased, you know, it's like now we're, you know, I think society is realizing that there's no such thing as a masculine or a feminine sport. You know, a sport is a sport. Totally. And I think, you know, at the time for me, I went through a phase where 
I lied about the sport I did because I was tired really? of people teasing me and making fun of me and always the reaction in their faces like, oh, I can see you're an athlete. What sport do you do? And then when I say figure skating, like, oh, you do figure skating? Isn't that mm -hmm. a girl sport? Totally. You know, I had to redefine my masculinity, what it means for me to be a man. Right. Because society, my whole life, have been telling me that I'm not men enough because I do this mm -hmm. sport. And so mm -hmm. I had to go through this huge shift and learn how to accept, you know, what I do and who I am and what I love. And knowing that, you know, being artistic and being vulnerable and expressing yourself is to me the definition also of what a man should be. But how did that not deter you? Because that is so hard to stomach when you're younger and all you want to do is fit in and be as normal as possible. Like normality mm -hmm. was social mm -hmm. currency. Why didn't you just throw the towel in the bucket and say, ciao? Because my whole identity was this Olympic champion. Mm. I was going to be Olympic champion no matter what. When did you do your first backflip? Because that is insane. Like, I can't imagine what is going through your head when you're just suspended midair. It's one of the most incredible feelings. You feel like you're flying. How does one say, I'm going to do a backflip on the ice? I've never done this before. Like, was there a trampoline situation? Was there a grass situation? Or were you just <laughs> on? No. Are you, you're serious on right ice. now? Just on ice the first time. You're like, if I die, then I if die. If I eat shit, I eat shit. And it's not going to be pretty. But had you ever done a backflip before? Yeah, so I had done it on the floor. Okay, okay. It wasn't super consistent, mm -hmm. but I could do it. Okay. And so what we did was... We took two towels. We put one towel on my belly, one towel on my lower back, and then we twisted the sides. Okay. And then you have one person hold it on each side. Brilliant. So that acts as a harness. Yes. Now there are, there's harnesses that have been developed since then to hold you up if you do a backflip and if something goes wrong, someone's there to hold you. At the time, we didn't have any of that. So towels did the trick. Oh my God. That's what we did. So I did, you know, 10 to 15 of them. And by the end, I was asking my coach, like, how does it feel? Like, are you guys helping me at all? And they're like, honestly, we're not doing anything. We're not even like, you're doing it on your own, essentially. By this point, you're doing it on your own. Oh my God. We're here just like as mental support, essentially. So time to uncage the bird, right? You're going for it. Take the towels off. And go. And then I skated around for about 15 minutes in panic. Just like skating around, being like, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. And then right as I'm about to do it, I'm like, no, 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 no. Okay, let me just... Oh my God. I so know that feeling. You know... That's how I felt on the high diving board. Yes. Totally. Like, I, am I going to jump? No, I'm not going to jump. <laughs> Crazy. So then how do you... How to pan out? So you just... You're like, okay... Let's go. Let's do it. And then I just decided I was going to do it. And the thing with backflip is like, once you decide you're going for it, you commit. So I just went for it. And through it, I landed on my skates. I didn't fall. And my heart was like 250 beats per minute. And I got off the ice and I was like, that is it. I am done. Peace out. 
Wow. See you tomorrow. So tell me about this. Did you end up qualifying for the Olympics? My first Olympic qualifiers were going to be in 2010. I was really coming in hot and potentially make the Olympics. And for Mm -hmm. me, as soon as that season ended, before the Olympic season started, I tore my ACL. Is that the most painful thing ever? It was (laughs) excruciating. I've heard this. I thought someone kicked me in the back of my leg, in the back of my knee. That's fucking awful. And that's not something that I told my mom or my coaches at the time, but I was playing flag football for my high school team. Was that not allowed? No, no. No other sport was allowed besides figure skating. Hell no. The, the yeah. chances of you injuring yourself and then missing on your, your own sport. But I didn't care because I was Superman at the time. Right, right, of course. Boom, nothing's going to happen to me. And next thing you know, I need surgery and it's going to take you out eight months to a year. Fuck. So essentially that year, Olympics, I didn't even get to qualify for them because I was going through this surgery. And that was my first real injury. And that could have went hanging up the skates or where I am now. So what ended up happening? I recovered from the ACL and my next two years were just hell because there's the physical healing that your body has to do. But then there's the emotional and psychological one Mm. that you know, coming back from that, you're starting from way lower than when you left off. And also I went from being really top in the world in junior to now I'm senior. Now I'm with the big dogs. I'm with the big guys. And it's my first year and I'm just coming off from a whole year of not even training. So the first year, I want to say and a half, you know, I struggled a lot. That's when I decided to leave Montreal and go to Detroit because the coaches there, the facility there, the skaters that were there were all international high world medalists level. Right. Olympic trials 2014 came around and that was a difficult one. That was a really difficult one because I did compete in it and they took the top three and I came fourth. You know, you feel like you deserved something and didn't get it. Right. And, and that happens a lot in figure skating. And I'm not the only one that it's happened to. Yeah, it's happened to a lot of people. Of course. You know, it's and just part life. of the sport. But it, yeah, and in life. Name and of the in game. Life. But again, it's like, you know, being a skater of color, then you always also question whether, is there anything that has to do with, with, with my race? I don't know, you know, and then it's right. just a question that you can ask yourself and you don't have the answer to, but it, it's unfortunate that that plays potentially a role. And I think, you know, I I think that experience was great, though, because it really allowed me to take a completely different course in my career. Mm -hmm. It took a dip. I I shifted after that. After these Olympics, didn't make the team. I came back another year and it wasn't great. And after that, I started to realize that potentially this idea that I have of myself, this thing of being Olympic champion, potentially it's not my path. But Mm. I've put my entire self-worth and everything that I am into that. And so if this is not who I am, then who am I? I don't fucking know. Who am I? But I still had in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, 2018, you know. Right. Next qualifying round. I I had next qualifying. But a few weeks before nationals, my grandfather fell in a coma. And 
In my dad's culture, our culture for us to meet was really important because my father was my grandfather's first son and I was my father's first son. And we hadn't met yet. And for us to continue the Balday generation, we had to have that connection. We have to meet. And so a few weeks before nationals, my dad's like, my father's in a coma. I got to go to Guinea because I don't know if I'm going to see him or I'm going to be able to speak to him at least one more time. And he's like, I would like for you to come with me. And I'm like, I can't. Like, I I got nationals. I have four continents coming up. I got worlds coming up. This is literally like the the worst time that for me in terms of my career. And it was going to be about a week after nationals. So nationals happened, had the worst competition of my life. And so at that point, my season was over. It was done. And so called my dad. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, yo, was good. We going or what? Wasn't it the center of the Ebola crisis at that time? Yeah, exactly. You're right on point. It was in the middle. And Guinea was one of the hardest hit countries from Ebola. And everyone around me was telling me not to go. You can't go. You're going to die. Yeah. And then for me, I was like, well, there's something that's pulling me. I need to go on this trip. But anyways, we, we, got, to, we got to Guinea and we... Went to the village. It took a while to get there because you're driving on roads that are non-existent. Essentially, you're just driving through mountains, through rocks for about six to eight hours. You're driving maybe five kilometers an hour, five miles an hour. So it was a long trip to get there. But once we got there, it's like, it was like 50 people. And it's all family because my grandfather had four wives and they all had five, six children. And all of these kids had kids. And so there's literally 50 people and it's all family and they're there and everyone's crying and there's all the neighboring villages. Some people walked for three hours to our village to come and greet my father and I because my father hadn't been there in 15 years almost. And we got there and I got to meet my grandfather and that moment was just like, unlike anything that I experienced, the, 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 the love that I felt, the connection that I felt was just like, it hit me so hard and 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 I, I I couldn't believe that we were here and I spent three weeks there. And at that point, I had decided I was not going to get back on the ice until I found a reason that came from within. Because I started to realize that all of my reasons were external. This image of being Olympic champion, um, pleasing my mom and Skate Canada and my coaches and medals and success, you know, those were the motivating factors for me. And it wasn't actually anything that came from inside of me. And I, I, you know, I sat with my grandfather and he essentially told me that he was so proud of who I was. And it had nothing to do with my skating career, what I've won, what I've done, I had nothing to do with that. He was seeing the human being that I was and the person that I was inside of me. And he had the deepest sense of pride. And I realized that if I started to go deeper within myself authentically and start sharing that, that's something for me that I can find fulfillment in regardless Mm -hmm. of results regardless of making Olympics or not. And I started essentially from that point on, started seeing even judges as humans, as people. Did the routines change? They did. Mm -hmm. They did. I went to a place where 
as of now, I was only going to skate to something that I wanted to skate to. So you keep skating. And then in 2018, you decide to leave the competition circuit. It was my last year and I was already operating from the space of connecting with people and wanting to share myself authentically. But I still had this attachment to making the Olympics. And so I started the season. I was ready to go. I was killing it. I was better than ever that summer. And right before the first international competition of the season, I was training and I hit my topics, which we never do. But that's the typical figure skating movie thing. It's like, you skate, obviously, you, people think, oh, I'm going to hit the topic and fall, but we don't actually do that. But I did. Really? I hit the topic and went straight into the boards and hit my back. And at that time, I had already had four concussions and this was my fifth one. And oh it was God. a bad one. But I didn't think it was going to be that bad because I didn't hit my head. It was only whiplash. So mm. in my mind, it was like, I've had four concussions. You know, they've lasted a couple weeks each. And all of them, I hit my head. This one, I did it. So it shouldn't take that long. Um, lasted three months. Three months of not being able to skate for even 15 minutes without then being in bed for three days. What feeling did you get when you were skating with a concussion? My nervous system was out of whack. Mm. My eyes would hurt always. I had this intense fogginess that I couldn't get out of. And then when I feel a little bit better, there's less of a fog. I'd be like, okay, let's go skate a little bit. I'd skate 15 minutes and the fog was intense. My eyes were burning and my head is just like this. It's like a migraine, essentially. At that point, it was really hard because every day that went by, it's like this dream of making the Olympics. It's just getting further and further and further away from me every minute of the day. And I can feel that. And I sit in it and I, I, I can't not think about it. I wasn't sleeping. I was anxious. Mm. I was depressed. I, I, and, and not sleeping is also a symptom of concussions. And so I was in this cycle, this loop that I couldn't get out of and I didn't know what to do. And what if I never compete again? What if this is the end of my career? I wasn't able to justify that. I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like, you know, I, I haven't, I, still, it's like, I, I felt like I hadn't done enough. I have to, I have, you know, it's like this, <laughs> this wanting and this need that we attach ourselves to. It's just, it was killing me inside. It was eating me up, you know? And so, <laughs> yeah, so two and a half months in, I had been working with a bunch of different therapists and, and, and healers. And this one woman I was working with, she was an energy healer. My sister was walking downtown and she walked by her. Her name was Dolores. The energy healer. Yeah. And Dolores stopped her and was like, how you doing? And they were talking and, and she was like, how's your brother? And she was like, oh, you know, he's going, still going through his concussion. And then she essentially told her, she was like, I can feel, I can feel his energy. I can feel that he's not doing well. It's all over my body right now. And I need you to tell him something. And so my sister calls me and she's like, I saw Dolores and she wants me to tell you, let it go. When my sister said these three words, let it go, 
something clicked in my mind. And all of a sudden, 10,000 tons of weight just lifted off of my shoulder because it's like this electricity zap in my brain that was just like, you're holding on to something that you don't have to hold on to. You've done enough. Let it go. It was this, this moment where I was just like, I can experience freedom. I can, I just need to let it go. I want to switch gears a bit to, uh, to TikTok and Instagram because those videos, your character comes through so infectiously in your skating. I mean, I don't watch skating, yet I cannot stop watching your Instagram videos. <laughs> like, you don't have to be an ice skating fan to love them. What was the story behind your first viral video? So my wife is the one that was like, we need to get you on TikTok. I actually said no the first time she said, let's do a TikTok. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not cool. I'm not, I'm, I don't want to do that. I'm not a Gen Zer. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not there. Um, but she, she convinced me. And at that point, TikTok, we'd been around for maybe six, seven videos. And that one was the easiest, simplest one. We were, we were in Calgary and we were driving around after spending time at the dog park. We saw this rink and I was like, why don't we just like shoot a video? There's a rink right there. And it took us five minutes. We filmed the moment of me finding the ice. And then we filmed me walking to the ice. We threw a backflip and then we did the little dance after and put it together and put it on, on TikTok, not thinking anything. We were just like, okay, cool. We, we did a video. Let's move on. And then we posted it in the evening and we had dinner right away. And by the time we finished in, we came back. We were like, this is at 100,000 views. We were just there and we were like refreshing, refreshing. And it would jump by 10,000. And then I, at some point it was jumping by 50,000. And then it was literally jumping by 100,000. But the next thing you know, it's at a million. And we were like, what the is happening? And so we kind of put it aside. We're like, okay, let's just go to bed. We wake up next morning. It's at 7 million and it's just building. And then it just keeps growing, keeps growing. And we were like, holy shit, our lives are about to change. And we're like, okay. This is something we can use now. This is a platform we can use to share. We can mm -hmm. use to not only share your art and yourself as a performer, but you can use your voice. We right. can raise awareness and we can create representation for young Black, Indigenous and people of color who might not believe that they can belong in the sport. But now we have a platform to do that. And here we are. That's really beautiful. And I feel. I mean, this is all the validation that you needed, right? As well. You were yeah. just stuck doing these routines in front of people that did not get you, understand you, costumes you probably didn't want to wear. All of a sudden now you're in street clothes or designer clothes yeah. of your choosing, yeah. dancing to Drake and Usher, which is kind of all you wanted to begin with. Like it is such a celebration of your core anyway, which is an incredible... It's full circle, you know? It's everything I could have imagined myself doing on the ice when I was a kid, but yeah. was never able to until now. What drives you? The ability to inspire others to be authentic to themselves and share their gifts with the world. And then obviously inspiring young Black Indigenous and people of color to believe that they can be in the sport, be themselves. 
That is a wonderful answer. Thank you so much, Elaj. This was so special. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here too. That, my friends, was Elaj Balde. You can follow him at Elaj Balde on Instagram or TikTok and me at Gillian Sagansky on Instagram or Twitter. I always want to hear what you think of this episode or any episode. So DM me with comments, questions, concerns. So get in touch and I'm excited to hear from you. Until next time.